Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. We're coming up on the end of the year, and I want to clean out my closet metaphorically by answering all of your emails. I want to wipe the slate clean, which is going to mean that I have to answer your emails very quickly. So let's get to it. Patron from Denmark wrote in and asked, If someone is emotionally abusive with put-downs and bragging about themselves, but only does this once every few months when they feel criticized, is this an indicator of narcissistic personality disorder or something else or nothing? End of question. Okay, so emotionally abusive with put-downs. So they put down people and they brag about themselves, but it's only once every few months when they feel criticized. Now, that could be an indicator of narcissistic personality disorder, but you know, there's not enough information there. And when it comes to assessing personality disorders, you need you know droves of data to zero in on a conceptualization that would include a personality disorder. All right, this next email, anonymous patron says, you mentioned that people with personality disorders are not inherently abusive. Uh, so let me, you mentioned that people with personality disorders are not inherently abusive. It's also very common for the case studies and short descriptions of people with certain disorders, especially borderline and narcissistic, to involve behavior I would consider abusive. Could you provide some examples of people with these disorders where the disorders are not manifest in an abusive way? End of email. Yeah, well, if you're looking online for descriptions of borderline and narcissistic personality disorder, you're not going to get a very well-rounded description of it. You know, suffering from a personality disorder does not dictate your behavior. What, in my conceptualization, it dictates your schemas. You can manage your schemas in a way that doesn't result in abuse of other people. And you can also be abusive to other people without having a personality disorder. So if I was to give a, you know, quick case study of someone, say, with narcissistic who was not abusive, this is someone who was neglected early in life, and they have a deep, deep sense that they're worthless, that they cover up very sufficiently with grandiosity with themselves and with narcissistic supply. And they also do not want to be seen as an abusive, mean person. And so they manage their behavior towards others in a way that garners them narcissistic supply, meaning that they have a very impressive life or and or they make sure that everyone understands how how good they are you know they might even become extremely altruistic towards society or the environment or something and get a lot of praise for that and they're not necessarily doing it for the cause but for the supply for the for the adoration and it's sufficient enough such that they don't need to stomp on other people to get it People with borderline and people with narcissistic, they're not inherently abusive. And and I really want to stress this. People with borderline, they don't wake up in the, you know, part of their disorder does not involve abuse. Their disorder, borderline individuals, involves extreme emotional volatility because they have complex PTSD regarding being abandoned and abused and are very easily hurt. So people with borderline are, and narcissistic are very easily hurt. And so when they're hurt, they get very angry or defensive or something, and they have to cope somehow. And sometimes they will do it in ways that harm others, and sometimes they won't. And it just depends on the pattern of the individual. And it drives me bananas that the Internet uh, just reduces borderline and narcissistic to lack of empathy and abuse of other people, which is utterly ridiculous. 
I mean, having said that, it absolutely can happen. I mean, if you've been abused by someone in your life, there's a you know chance that they had a personality disorder that could have included borderline or narcissistic. So I'm not saying that people with borderline and narcissistic aren't abusive because they very much can be for sure. A lot of people who are abusive have personality disorders, but the idea for like for me, if you said my client has borderline, the, I wouldn't assume that person was abusive. That, that wouldn't be my assumption. Now, might that person be stressful to be around, you know, possibly, but not necessarily abusive. So next email from patron Hannah from Poughkeepsie says, can you please ex- can you please explain the subtypes of borderline personality disorder, such as the quiet type, discouraged type, etc.? It seems that my borderline personality disorder symptoms mainly show to my partner, but I can otherwise keep them suppressed with others. It is confusing when the borderline personality disorder stereotype on the internet and in our culture seems to be people who are outwardly impulsive, reckless, angry, etc. End of email. Yeah. So I'm sort of grouping a lot of these emails together regarding this topic, but. Uh, and I could go on a long jag about the different types, but um, for the sake of time, what I'll say is that there's a, I don't know what else, there's a backlash on the internet. So there's a thing called borderline personality disorder, and I've described it briefly, uh, you know, already, and I've done whole deep dives on it that you can listen to. But, uh, but the internet and the public uh, see borderline and and a lot of clinicians incidentally see borderline as reduced to people who are abusive and therapists often reduce it to clients who are likely to sue you or people who cut is another um, sort of mnemonic that people will use or heuristic that people use um, which is uh, utterly ridiculous I mean to just assume that someone who cut has borderline is ridiculous so because borderline personality disorder is so complex, people, due to their stupidity, like to reduce things for their own benefit because they don't understand the full breadth of it, which is natural but not responsible. So what happens is there is a backlash to the backlash in that there's a bunch of people with borderline out there going like, I don't fit the stereotype. And then they go online and they're trying to find like, well, I I must be some rare type of borderline. And then these types start to crop up like quiet type of borderline. And when I first heard of the quiet type of borderline, I'm like, well, what are you contrasting that with? Is there a loud type of borderline? Because I never saw borderline people as necessarily loud and angry and abusive. So we don't need types. What we need to do is strike back at the core of the matter, which is people in our culture and the Internet need to shut up about things they don't understand And we need to tell people to stop stereotyping people with borderline as being abusive and angry and reckless and impulsive and terrible human beings. Certainly some people with borderline could be described that way, but the vast majority of people I've treated with borderline do not fit the stereotype. So we don't need, quote unquote, the quiet type of borderline. We need to change people's opinion of the stereotype of borderline. It'd be like if you stereotyped black people as criminals and then black people are like, huh, I'm not a criminal. I need to come up with like this rare type of black person that says like, well, I'm the I'm I'm a non-criminal black person. All those other criminals, those are regular black people. No, (laughs) we understand we need to strike back at the ridiculous stereotype. Black people are not criminals. Some black people are some white people are criminals. So but most black people are not criminals. Most people are not criminals and black people included. 
The same way, you know, borderline people are not necessarily screaming, wild, you know, abusive, horrible, angry human beings. And we need to push back on that idea. All right, this next email is from patron Ada from Norway. She says, can you please tell me more about mentalization-based therapy? End of email. Yeah. Mentalization-based therapy isn't something that I know that much about, but I can speak broadly about mentalization and utilizing it and having it be a primary goal with clients in that it, and it can often be used with people with borderline in that mentalization is the ability that humans have in particular to essentially read other people's minds, to know from their facial expressions or the context or certain emotional cues that they're having, or just your knowledge of another human being, that you know what is going on in their mind, even though they haven't told you. Uh, and it's it's really a magical skill that we have as humans. I mean, this ability to put ourselves in other people's shoes without them having to describe it to us. You know, you see someone in line at the Starbucks, and they're kind of, you know, there's a long line, and they're kind of tapping their foot, and they're just like, you know, and they're looking at their watch. Well, anyone understands, oh, that person is anxious about getting to the front of the line. They, they have an appointment to get to or something. They're kind of freaking out that the line is long. And it's so obvious to us as humans. But that's a, that's a humongously like, talented skill that humans have. Now, other animals have that skill as well, um, you know, other primates and whatnot. But humans are very, very good at it. We are, you know, it's one of the reasons why... It's uh, hypothesized that we don't have hair on our faces, why we have eyebrows, why we have whites of our eyes. It's because through our facial expressions, we're extremely communicative about what our emotional state is. And we're so we're so social that and our ginormous brains are halfway oriented and, and developed for this reason to, like, understand the mental state of another person. And so that's what mentalization is. So all of us understand that that person in line at the Starbucks is anxious to get to the front of the line. And yet that person has not said a thing. The person hasn't said, I'm anxious to get to the front of the line or I'm late for an appointment. You have no verbal confirmation of that, but just based on body language, you know. Or even if you just saw they weren't even tapping their foot and looking at their watch. They're just kind of like a little fidgety. You, you would also kind of imagine. Now. Mentalization can go wrong, though, in that when we are undifferentiated, when we're mistreated, when we have certain schemas, we can be massively distorted about what's going on in other people's minds, particularly when we're triggered. And people with personality disorders, that's the primary feature is that they are massively uh, misperceiving what the world is like based on their experience, based on their schemas. And, for example, with people with borderline, they will see that you're, you know, you'll, you'll be talking to them and you start yawning and they, they interpret that as you hate them and you've always hated them. You've never liked them. And not only that, but no one will ever like them and everyone is bored with them and they'll never be worth anything. And they, so your yawn gets interpreted as if you were to stand up and say, I hate you. I've always hated you. And everyone has always hated you and no one will ever love you. And there you go. I'm leaving you now. To the borderline person, it can feel that way. And because of the undifferentiation, they don't question their own interpretation of what's going on in someone else's mind. And so mentalization therapy really focuses on that, focuses on your ability to look at your own emotions, thoughts, and feelings, and really 
check your perceptions of other people. People who were mistreated growing up, they uh, were not given an opportunity to properly attune and get attuned to. But there's, there's a certain amount of attuning that children do to their parents and to other people in their life. So when things are going optimally, you're a three-year-old or even just a six-month-old child, and you're having a good time, you're relaxed, you're safe, you're playing, and you're interacting. There's a lot of eye contact. Whenever you know, If you look at any time you hang out with like a 12-month-old child, you, you just sort of pay attention. There's a lot of eye contact. If, if you're in their inner circle of caregivers, there's just like so much interaction. And you are attuning to the child. You're mentalizing, you know, if the child is upset or hungry or tired or happy or curious like you're attuning to that and reacting in accordance with that but the child is also attuning to you slightly not in the not nearly in the same way but the child is very interested in your emotional state it's kind of a crude understanding they're basically just looking for are you are you relaxed do you approve are you angry at me are you ignoring you know kind of real baseline self-centered narcissistic mentalization but through that repetitive behavior the child learns how to extend themselves into other people's minds. And you rinse and repeat this process over the first, you know, five years of life and beyond. And the child emerges um, and further develops into adulthood, the ability to semi-accurately predict what's in other people's minds. Whereas if you're mistreated from those early years, you never are given an opportunity to really develop that skill in a strong way. And so it's another aspect of some personality disorders that you need to work on you sort you're sort of working on that ability as an adult so that you don't misperceive what's happening in other people and thus you don't have the same feelings and thus you don't have the same motivation of behavior and you don't have the same self-destruction all right next email anonymous patron says can one person suffer from both borderline personality disorder and also be codependent end of email the answer is in short yes absolutely these Two disorders are not mutually exclusive. A lot of disorders aren't. And to have borderline is to have a central schema of betrayal and abandonment. And to be codependent is to have a central schema of my only worth and my only safety is through taking care of someone else's self-destruction. Those two things can absolutely exist in the same person. All right, this next email, anonymous patron, she says, My sister takes the role of mediator in all family conflicts. How can I be emotionally close with her without feeling that I'm burdening her and feeding into the dynamic? I'm hesitant to be honest with my sister about my feelings when issues arise because I'm worried she'll go into fix-it mode and feel guilty if she can't resolve things. How can I establish emotional closeness with her when I'm worried the things I say will become data points that she feels the need to incorporate into some sort of resolution that I'm not even seeking? End of email. Yeah, well, good for you for identifying that. Good for you for being altruistic for your sister. Uh, the first thought that comes to mind, of course, I can't know uh, specifically because I would have to assess, but generally speaking, it's possible that you're actually inadvertently playing into it by complaining in a triangulating way about other people in the family. So, you know, just try to stick to things that don't, you know, there's a lot of topics you could talk about with her because you're concerned about being close to her. So there's a lot of different things you could talk with her about that don't involve people's problems, particularly other people's problems. So that would be the first. And, and if you're having trouble with that, like I said, you might actually be inadvertently playing your role in the triangulation 
with her, even though you're trying not to, but you're subconsciously doing it anyway. The other thing, and I don't know if this would work, but if this were my sister, I would I would tell her, I'd be like, uh, you seem to have an, an anxiety about fixing other people's problems. And I just I just want you to know, you don't ever have to fix mine. In fact, when you try to fix my problems, it makes me feel sad for you. And it also, it makes it so I don't want to tell you anything because I'm worried you're going to try to go into fix-it mode. And, and I just want to let you know, like, you do not have to fix my problems. You don't have to fix anyone else's problems. You you have deeper worth to me. <laughs> you're you're very important to me because just for who you are and well beyond anything that you could ever fix in my life. So, you know, just know that I love you and I, I want to be connected to you. You know, that's what I would say, you know, because that really cuts to the core and uh, that opens up a conversation that it might take a long time and many years of therapy potentially for her. But, um, I would just say that I'd be like, Hey, I'm about to tell you a story about mom that kind of bugged me. Um, sister of mine, but uh, I'm terrified you're going to go into fix-it mode and, and ruin your life, and then I'll feel guilty, or you'll feel guilty, because you didn't, and and I just want to kind of complain about mom for a second. I, I don't want you to have to fix it. I don't want you to feel like it's your responsibility. The other thing to think about is the fusion or undifferentiation that's going on in your family as a whole, and obviously consulting with a family therapist on how to resolve that, because her her role in your family might be really embedded in a larger family problem. All right, this next email is from Anonymous, an annual patron. She says, how are the connection to self and the differentiation concept related? They seem related to me, but not quite the same. End of email. Yeah, I like emails like this because it shows that you're listening and you're learning and you're making connections. So you're like, how is the, and I like the phrase connection to self, not sense of self and not a self, you know, it's because you, everyone has a self. You just have to get connected to it. So you're saying, how is connection to self related to differentiation? Well, one is that as one improves, the other improves. Uh, so there's that. The other is that with differentiation in Bowen's theory, he actually had a, a concept very similar to the connection to the self, which was basic self and pseudo self. And that uh, Bowen said that, the more differentiated you are, the more basic self you had. Basic self refers to like connection to the self. Like you know who you are, you are in connection with your goals and your emotions and your needs. And pseudo self is that part of you that is reacting anxiously in response to others. You're trying to please others. You're trying to avoid shame from others. And it, and you're putting forth behavior and feelings and, and motivations that are to to stave off anxiety related to social interactions. So for Bowen, he was like, you're always trying to have a bigger basic self and a smaller pseudo self. And that and that's related to differentiation, which is another way of just talking about connection to self. All right, this next email is from anonymous patron from Ukraine. She says, what are the probable reasons for anyone to self-sabotage him or herself? So I'll just chime in here. What, you know, why do we sabotage ourselves sometimes? Well, there are various different reasons. One is that we internalize a image or a version of ourselves that other people see in us that we're a screw-up, and then we act it out as a way of confirming our belief about ourselves. When, when, we, when we've been told that we're a screw-up, 
and we internalize that voice, we can sometimes subconsciously create circumstances so that we can confirm, yes, we are a screw up. Uh, it's a masochistic impulse that um, happens sometimes. Um, and I, at least that's how I conceptualize it sometimes. Um, the other is that we can sabotage ourselves to avoid a failure, uh, meaning that if we fail on purpose or we do it to ourselves, it's sort of like if you believe that people are going to leave you and no one will ever love you, then you cheat frequently or you just break up with people or you act irresponsible and then the person breaks up with you, but you were like, well, it was, you know, I, I, I was in, at least I, I had something to do with it. I, I sort of preemptively, you know, destroyed that relationship before they could destroy it for me. And, and, and it feels strangely to this, to the ego, it feels better when at least you had something to do with it. You know, it feels like you, you had some control over it because you're convinced that it's going to end horribly and the person's going to leave you. So you might as well have some, some say in the matter, if that makes any sense. Those are just a couple of reasons, you know, there's various different reasons why, why people self-sabotage. Another reason is that when we have been criticized a lot growing up, we internalize this experience of, you know, we're a screw up and, and we might fight against it a lot. We might really strive to succeed, but we always have this nagging voice like, ah, you're a screw up, you're a fraud, you're an idiot. And when tensions rise in us and we have a lot of stress, the that part of our self can become activated and cause us to have even more stress, you know, like uh, that nagging voice of like, you're going to screw this up. Oh my God. You know, what if someone to, and then that stress, when we're stressed out, our brains don't work correctly. And then we make mistakes, which could be seen as self-sabotaging. <clears throat> Another question you ask is please advise any tricks or tactics to forgive yourself. It seems harder than forgiving others. End of email. Yeah. Forgiving the self is important. Self-compassion is very important. And Obviously, there. so there are two prongs. One is to really force the issue on yourself. Just be like, no, you know, when you hear those voices and you hear those notions and you have those notions to push back and say, no, 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 I, I'm going to forgive myself. I, I, you know, I give it, I, I tried my best and I made a mistake and that's okay. You know, you just got to really drill that into your head. The other prong is to have relationships that treat you in a way that is forgiving of you. For example, my relationship with Bob, as you know, is strong. And when I tell him about things that I'm ashamed of for myself, he is very effective at making me feel acceptable and that I shouldn't be ashamed of myself. Sometimes I think he almost takes it too far. And I feel like there's sometimes when I deserve to be ashamed of myself. But, but anyway, I internalize that relationship and I thus feel less judgmental of myself. And it's been a, you know, decades of various relationships in my life and, you know, individual efforts on my part to become less judgmental of myself. Um, you know, over the, when I, if I rewind the clock 25 years, I was way more judgmental of myself than I am today. And that's because of, for that I have talked about things that I'm ashamed about and other people have either, have either said, you have nothing to be ashamed about or, you know, you, yeah, I mean, that's not great that you did that, but I don't think you should beat yourself up about it. You know, it, as I always say, the road to recovery for, from a lot of the things that we suffer from psychologically is through relationships. 
And I know some people really don't like that answer. They're, they're like, well, I want to do it on my own. I don't want to have to depend on others. We were born to depend on others. We are social creatures. We evolved that way. Uh, I mean, so, you know, now maybe some people can do everything on their own, but that's certainly a paternalistic idea that's been drilled into our head by the patriarchy, and we should push against that. And two, it, it probably will go a lot faster and a lot easier if you find and cultivate relationships that can actually facilitate healing, and that's where therapy comes in. This next email is from Anonymous Patron. She says, My friend is a queer woman who is currently dating a man, and she recently made two new friends who are also queer women, and they invited, it, invited her to a party. At the party, she panic lied and told them that she had a girlfriend and proceeded to tell them true things about her real relationship with her boyfriend, but switched her boyfriend's pronouns from he, him to she, her. She told me that she was really worried about not fitting in and being shamed because she was in a heterosexual relationship, but she wants to continue to be friends with these women, so I have no idea what her plan was. I honestly thought this was only something people did in romantic comedies, but apparently it is real. What causes someone to panic lie, even when they know they will eventually have to tell the truth? End of email. Well, panic lying... You know, who knows why your friend did this? Uh, I'd have to talk with her and find out what happened there But and her history. But I would say in general, we're all prone to panic lying. We've probably all panic lied before. Some of us have even panic lied about things that we've been like, oh, my, you know, you're saying your question is, you know, why would you panic lie if you know you're just going to get caught later? Well, that's the whole thing about panic is we don't make good choices. We're panicking in the moment. Uh, so there's that, but there's also being raised certain ways. You know, there are people people who are prone to lying in general and panic lying are raised in a way where they either had to or was modeled to them. It's it's something that is uh, very obvious to me when I see it in terms of behavior, but it's something that isn't talked about very often. You know, lying is a hugely destructive thing in relationships, obviously, and it's something that is developed early in life. Um, when you're young, you, you developed a, like a pattern of it. For example, your friend who's queer m might have been abused, maybe even because she was queer growing up. And she learned that she had to always lie, even maybe even about this. You know, she's 13 years old and she's flirting with a woman online. And someone says who you, you know, you're flirting with, you know, maybe parents or church or whatever. And she just learned you always lie. You always just switch it into, um, you know, always switch the she, her into he, him. Uh, now she's doing it the other direction now, but you could imagine that transference of that judgment that she experienced growing up onto these other women. The other thing I'll say is, um, I, you know, I don't know what kind of people she's hanging out with, but, you know, most queer women would be fine <laughs> if you were, if you said you were bisexual and you're like, you know, I, I, I'm both. I'm attracted to both men and women. I'm, I'm currently with a man. I mean, to assume that these other women would judge her. I, 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 now, maybe she knows something about that that would happen, and, and certainly, you know, that can happen. But um, you know, I, I would. Now, what does she do? Well, she could just go and to them and say, "Look, I panic lied the other day. I actually have a boyfriend. I thought you were going to hate me, but I think that's me assuming things about you that are unfair." You know, you know, just, just. But it, it's, it's also an example of how our society is has a long way to go 
and is oppressive to queer people. You know, when you oppress a group of people, they can sometimes become very insular and very protective of uh, their group because when they allow people into their group who are not truly of the group, they can sometimes be infiltrated and harmed. And so you'll see in groups that are minorities and oppressed and bullied will sometimes enforce extreme, um, you know, exclusionary rules on their group because of self-protection. So it, the problem is, is that we push minorities and other groups of people into groups where they feel like they have to become exclusionary, which it, so we don't want to blame the exclusionary. We want to blame the broader context that pushes them to feel like they need to be exclusionary. Now we don't know if these women were exclusionary, but your friend assumed that for some reason. All right, let's take a break. We get back more emails. All right, we're back from the break. I thought we'd do an OPP, a patron shout out to people who became patrons in June of 2019. And not only did they become patrons, but they have stayed loyal patrons ever since June of 2019. So we have the Jaswini from God knows where we have Miranda from Pennsylvania. We have Zipporah from Peabody, Massachusetts. We have Geo, Rob, Kasha, Pamalam, KB, Hetty, Sarah, and Adrienne from God knows where. And we have Michelle from New Jersey and Jay from California. Thank you so much for becoming patrons all the way back in June of 2019 and staying patrons as loyal patrons. Super cool of you. That's next emails from patron Rachel from Puyallup, who I think you are the famous patron, Rachel, are you not? Your question is, is border polar becoming a real diagnosis? I just heard about this today from another therapist. End of email. So border polar, if you're not familiar, is people who both have, you know, comorbid borderline personality disorder and, and bipolar one or two. And it's a you know, a slang term that's used occasionally. I don't hear it in my clinical circles, but I've heard it in peripheral clinical circles, people saying that person has border polar. I find it to be a little dismissive. I I don't like these kinds of nicknames, you know. I'd I'd rather just people say someone suffering from borderline personality disorder and bipolar one. So there's that. And and the places I've heard it, I, I think that it's kind of a catch word for this is, you know, this is one really annoying, crazy, chaotic client that you have to watch out for because borderline personality disorder in some clinical circles is stereotyped as being, you know, very problematic, likely to sue you, all that kind of stereotype. And and uh, bipolar disorder, what did I say, borderline? Yeah, borderline. And bipolar disorder um, also can be stereotyped as being pretty chaotic and difficult to work with. Um, you know, not being compliant with meds or treatment or that kind of thing. And that's, of course, a stereotype, but not necessarily true, of course. And I also will see, and you've heard me talk about this before, where people, I think particularly in psychiatry, but really anywhere, people confusing borderline with bipolar, which I just have to say, I, I do not understand why you would confuse those two diagnoses. They're just completely different. Unless you only have three minutes to assess someone, then I could imagine saying, well, could be borderline, could be bipolar. 
I don't know which one it is, but you know, you get to know someone beyond three minutes. It's pretty clear the difference between mania. <laughs> mania is pretty wildly different from borderline uh, and even being a triggered borderline. Now, if you're highly triggered in a borderline state, I mean, or you're in a highly triggered state of your borderline personality disorder, you know, you could be pretty volatile emotionally, um, depending on your severity of your disorder. And I imagine that maybe someone might be slightly confusing that with mania, but mania is so distinctive. It's so, it's so, um, like this, I've, everyone that I know, clinically and personally who has experienced a manic phase it is so clearly mania mania is so distinct and people with borderline personality disorder do not have anything remotely close to a manic episode anyway but can you have both yeah absolutely um the other thing i'll say is uh, uh, can you have a, a version of bipolar where it it looks like maybe you also have borderline when you really don't. Uh, yes. Could you have borderline personality disorder and be highly triggered frequently and be mistaken for also having borderline or for also having bipolar? Yes. Um, so there's that. But I, I will. I just did a quick search in my research database, you know, that looks through all the journals at my university library for the word border polar. And there's there's no research papers. So this is a, you know, a colloquial slang term. It, maybe it's on the Internet or something, but I don't see any research on it. Now, is there research on borderline personality disorder and bipolar being comorbid? Absolutely. There's been tons of research showing that they're associated with each other. They have similar, bat, you know, uh, genesis, meaning that trauma can provoke both. So, you know, there's that. All right, this next email is from pat patron Brittany from Seattle. She says, can sexual trauma be processed in couple counseling? My partner and I started couple counseling, and in session, my boyfriend alluded to unpacking traumas that have led to him having difficulty engaging in sex with close partners. Can couple counseling help process sexual trauma or abuse in the past? Will he eventually need to find an individual therapist to improve the relationship? End of email. Well, patron Brittany from Seattle, it's possible. I would just talk about it with your therapist. But if I were your therapist, which I'm not, I would give you the option. There are pros and cons to processing his traumas in couple therapy and um, in individual therapy. That would be an adjunct to the couple therapy. I am one of those extreme marriage and family therapists in that uh, in the area of not being dogmatic about certain issues only being an individual therapy and I've to good effect I've uh, a lot of my clients over the years past I don't know 10 or 15 years have been couples and it's not unusual for one member after you know three years of couple therapy to say I think I'm ready to talk about this stuff that happened to me when I was younger that I think is a part of what's happening to me in my relationship and I will give them the option. I'll say, you know, we can process that in couple counseling. We could also talk about you getting your own individual therapist. We could take a break from couple counseling while both of you get individual. You know, there's a lot of different options. And I, I give them the pros and cons. And sometimes, and I would say oftentimes, they will um, choose to work on it in couple counseling. 
for a variety of reasons that I won't go into. But um, what you'll find in my field and possibly in the lay public is this uh, like unsubstantiated dog dogma around if you're going to talk about sexual trauma, it has to be an individual counseling. And I find that this is a an American, I don't know if it's patriarchal, but it's this idea that if you have a like a pathology, you have to be in a room alone with one person. And I find that sometimes in the medical community, we're kind of like this as well. Like if you have cancer, you drop off your spouse at the hospital and you go home. Why can't you come inside with your spouse if they're going to get treatment for cancer? And I know that some medical facilities will do that and even encourage it. But we, we just have this outmoded idea of just like you drop off the sick person and that person becomes unsick alone and then you pick them up when they're unsick. And it, there's so much now there are pros to doing it on your own, right? You, you have the, the whole session is just for you. You can talk about whatever you want to. You don't have to worry about insulting your partner. You don't have to bother your partner. It's easier maybe to schedule that sort of thing. So, you know, those are pros that you could, and there are other pros to doing individual therapy when you have traumas like this. But there are also pros to doing couple counseling in that your partner can be there to hold your hand, to support you. And it is a powerful, powerful thing for a spouse to observe the healing and recovery of the other spouse. Imagine for you all out there, and you have a relationship that you're in or you used to be in a relationship, Imagine if you could sit next to your partner while they cried about what their parents put them through. You could hold their hand and witness the pain that they have gone through and and learn, oh, that's why my partner gets triggered when I do X, Y, and Z. Imagine the power of that and how that is completely negated if you do individual therapy. It's completely just, you know, uh, thrown out the window and what and I have obviously had a lot of individual clients over the years and a lot of the times what were what I'm working on with these individual people is really you know real deep and then there often it has implications to their marriage and I were left in individual therapy with me telling my client now go home and tell your spouse what you did in therapy and try to translate it to them because what you did here affects your your partner and whereas if their partner was just there, <laughs> they would see it in all of its glory. And so many wonderful transformations can happen. Um, not only, you know, the light bulbs going off for your partner, but also like the, the love that can happen and the holding of the hands and the crying and the validation. You know, the other side of it, imagine the difficulties that if you've ever been in individual therapy and you're getting support and you're doing some really deep work. Imagine if your spouse was there watching you and have, and caring about you and going like, Oh, you know, I, I feel so bad for my partner. I want to hug my partner. It's a powerful thing. So it's, it, you know, it's not necessary, but it certainly can be done. And I've done it. I've done full on sexual trauma therapy with an individual while their partner was there. In addition to doing couples counseling along the way. And it, you know, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to to do. I, it's my preference, um, but obviously, I'll do individual therapy, and I have with people. I've switched, you know, I've referred out or switched or something. All right, next email is from Patron Esmond from Minneapolis. He says, 
Are you going to do a deep dive on Ronald Fairburn and object relations theory? End of email. Uh, yes. I don't know about Ronald Fairburn. I'm, I certainly would include that in a history. I actually uh, tried to publish a paper on Ronald Fairburn, but um, and I, I have a fair amount of research on him already. But much more research I have on object relations theory, and I've, I've you know I've talked about it before. Will I do a deep? I want to do a deep dive, but anyway, the answer is I hope so, Esmond. All right, the next email is from anonymous patron. She writes, "I listened to your deep dive on obsessive compulsive disorder, but I was hoping you could please elaborate on a specific subtype of OCD, which I happen to suffer from, which is called real event OCD." I obsessively ruminate about events from my past and find it hard to trust my my recollections of what I did, often fearing that I was a horrible, irredeemable person. Although I'm, I'm in therapy for my OCD and am managing fairly well, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this type of OCD and how you think it's best to tackle it. Do you think that ERP works just as well for this presentation? End of email. So I get a fair amount of emails that are similar to this anonymous patron, which is people saying, can you talk about this type of OCD? And I don't know what to say, really, other than let's raise awareness for this type. So, you know, this real event OCD. OCD has many different subtypes in the same way that phobias have many different. It's a very similar phenomenon. So I don't have time or really the inclination to, you know, discuss in detail all the different subtypes other than to raise awareness for it. So let's raise awareness for it on a patron that there's a type of OCD where people will, as you say, obsessively ruminate about events from your past and you will obsess like, wait, do I have that right? Did, did I, you know, I remember this thing happened last week or last year, but do I, maybe I have it wrong. Maybe I did something horribly wrong. Did I do something horribly wrong? Did I did I make a fool out of myself and I'm I'm just like suppressing? I don't remember it. Do, should I ask like that that party last year? You know, did I make a fool out of myself? What happened back then? You know, and this anxiety of like, what if I made a fool out of myself and or what if I did something horrible to someone in the past and everyone hates me, and um and I'm and I'm suppressing it or I forgot it or well, I kind of remember, maybe I said this one thing. Did I say that? You know, how did that? You know, it, it's this obsession. It's, and then you compulsively check or that kind of thing. And so uh, it's totally in line with OCD. And there are many different kinds. And, and you're raising awareness for your kind, for your for your type. But there's not much more to say other than what I've already said about OCD. And then you say, you know, do I think that ERP works just as well for this presentation? You know, I don't know the research on it, but I would suspect that to be true. I mean, generally speaking, we're looking at behavioral exposure therapies in general for OCD. Uh, For example, with real event OCD, we want to have you sit with the anxiety, you know, really explore it and be like, Okay, you know, map it out. What what are you worried about specifically? Well, I'm worried about this party that I was at six months ago. And I've been like every day, all day long, I'm just thinking like, what if I said something stupid? What if I said something stupid? What if I said something stupid? And then you figure out some way to expose you to that likelihood. You just okay, well, let's just sit there. What if you did? What if you said something stupid? Um, let's just assume that you did say something stupid. Now, let, let's just... You know, what would that have looked like? Okay, let's really, you know, there's various different ways of, of doing this kind of work. But 
uh, it's essentially you're trying to get out of the OCD cycle and you're trying to expose yourself to the, you know, it's sort of like when people have OCD around cleanliness, uh, around germs, uh, you want one of the treatments is to actually have people eat a sandwich off of a toilet seat, for example. I mean, you know, you don't want to do something that's going to put someone's health at risk, but you slowly uh, move in that direction where you expose the person who's obsessed with germs to more and more situations where germs are possible. Now with, you know, the coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2 right now, it's a little you know, dubious to do that kind of stuff, but it's all about becoming habituated to the very thing that you're fearing such that your body no longer really cares about it anymore. And then thus your OCD symptoms diminish. All right. Sixth emails from anonymous patron. They write, how would you recognize someone on the antisocial personality disorder spectrum in everyday life? And especially in a romantic relationship, I am in the middle of divorcing my husband and he was abusive to me. My therapist, who has consulted with our previous couple's therapist, gently suggested to me that I read about antisocial personality as a possible conceptualization of my ex-husband's behavior. I read about it and reviewed the DSM criteria together with my therapist, and it was like a light bulb went off and and seemed to explain the constellation of things I couldn't previously make sense of from my husband. However, I am struggling because I do not want to be one of those people you often caution about who has a bad or abusive relationship and claims their ex is a sociopath. Can you talk about what pattern of antisocial personality disorder might look like in everyday life? What might be some indicators that a romantic partner has antisocial? Uh, As you can imagine, the internet is no help here. End of email. Well, anonymous patron, (laughs) music to my ears. You're just like, okay, even though my therapist is intimating that my, you know, soon to be ex-husband is suffering from any social personality disorder. And even though when I read the DSM, it seems to really fit my husband. I don't want to be one of those people you talk about who just jump to the sociopath or psychopath or antisocial label. So good because, well, I don't know if it's good. I think it's just, well, yeah, I think it's good that you're skeptical. I'm just like, Hmm, this seems to fit for me, but I'm just going to take a guess and say that, 98% of people going through divorces, if you showed them the DSM criteria for antisocial, they would endorse all symptoms of their soon-to-be ex. (laughs) Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but uh, when people are going through divorces, one, you treat each other like crap, and two, you see each other through this very, very negative lens. So I would, you know, just be extremely skeptical of your own interpretations of his behavior, especially when you're looking through the DSM, but you're, you know, you're saying, you know, Hey, help you're, you're, you're like, Hey, help me, Kirk, help me out here. Uh, what, what would it look like? Well, it looks like a lot of different things when you suffer from any social or you're a psychopath. There are a lot of different, uh, types of people who we would conceptualize as suffering from that. But the central feature is a callousness and a lack of empathy for other people. You just baseline don't really care. You don't have that internal pain when other people are hurting. You don't have that fear of disappointing other people. It just, you just don't, it just doesn't matter to you. You, you just don't care in the same way that like, 
one of the ways that all of us perhaps or maybe not all of us but some of us can relate to this is whenever you're eating yogurt or i don't even know if this is true but you take an antibiotic or something you're killing like millions of bacteria most of us don't care we're just like i don't I don't care that all those bacteria are dying <laughs> or you're using antibacterial soap or something and you're just killing bacteria or using Listerine in your mouth and you're just killing like whole colonies of bacteria in your mouth. You don't care. You're just like, well, you're in my way, bacteria. You're bothering me, bacteria. I am going to commit genocide <laughs> or species side on you right now. We just don't care. Right. So. Uh, or maybe a, another uh, more close to home example is when you use electricity right now, you know, intellectually that that contributes to potentially to, you know, depending on where your electricity is coming from to global warming and climate change and thus will impact species today and humans of tomorrow. And you you still turn on that thing you still drive to work you still turn on that lawnmower or turn on your lights or whatever or listen to this podcast on your phone <laughs> you know it you just you know you intellectually understand that's a bad thing but it doesn't hit you don't feel it in your gut you, you, you're just you intellectually understand that it's a bad thing but you don't feel the pain now that doesn't make you a psychopath that just makes you a normal human who has a hard time connecting with abstract pain of others um we're much more we evolved on the African savanna to take notice of humans pain that are close to us. It's very visible. You know, someone falls down or someone is hurt by someone else or someone is emotionally hurt. You know, that really gets to us unless we're a psychopath. If we're a psychopath, we look at other humans and there's a spectrum there. But if you're significantly on the antisocial spectrum, you see other humans the same way that you the same way that non psychopaths see humans a hundred years from now. We just we know that we're putting them at risk, but we just don't change our behavior. You know, we just well, I mean, uh, uh, hopefully they'll figure it out by then. I don't know. You know, like it just you just sort of now. I know some of you are doing a lot. Anyway, my point is is that uh, it and people with antisocial that's the foundation and all this all the symptoms thereof extend from that experience mainly you know their the criminal behavior ex, you know extends from their inability to predict how other people are going to feel and also their lack of caring about others so they they just use others they steal from others they um abandon others they steal from the till at work because you know they don't care about disapproval and they just want it. And, and, you know, it turns out that a lot of our rule adherence is because we have empathy. And I would always talk about this with parents, you know, because there's this huge obsession in my field around structure. You know, whenever you would have a kid who would be misbehaving, there'd always be this, well, we got to have structure. And, and I, as I've always said, structure is, is great. And if you want to set that as a goal, then go for it. But what I found over time was that the difference between the kids who followed the rules and the kids who didn't was a bond. When a child is bonded with their parents and is attached to their parents, they follow the rules, not because of, you know, because I would see parents who had terrible structure, but had very well behaved kids and would, and the kids would follow the rules because the kids did not want to disappoint their parents. So 
when you're a psychopath or antisocial, you do not care about disappointing other people, and thus you don't follow the rules. You just you just don't care. It just doesn't register, and you're just like, well, this is what I'm going to do. I, I know you don't want me to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And it kind of applies to in, immaturely to society and to police. Um, it seems that well, anyway. So, what might you see in a husband, sort of under the radar, that would be a product of antisocial? Well, you would feel uh, that you know people with it's hard to know but things that i would wouldn't be surprised that i would hear from you would be that you never really felt loved by him that you felt like you were just a a means to an end like an object in his life that he would do things maybe lie you know people with antisocial will often lie very easily and then when you confronted him on the lie or you the lie hurt you and, and you indicated that to him, he just didn't seem to care. Uh, he might um, take money from your purse and um, spend it. And then you're like, did you take money from anybody? Oh, no. And then, well, yeah. I mean, aren't we sharing each other's money? You know, th- there'd just be a lot of that kind of behavior potentially. Um, sexually, I could imagine things being um, not pleasant with someone with antisocial. <laughs> you could also see them doing stuff at work where they seem to exploit others or and often shoot themselves in the foot. Antisocial people, psychopathic people are often train wrecks in life. They, they also are often emotionally very disturbed because... In, in my theory about people with antisocial and people with psychopathy, they have a need for human attachment. They have a need for human relationships. They're, they're not that far afield as a human being. But because they don't have the ability to that sort of circuit in the brain that registers other people's pain and or cares about other people's pain, they end up in, uh, harming other people in ways that push other people away from them. And then they cry themselves to sleep at night. I've seen that a lot. I've seen psychopaths who were very, very depressed or, you know, very, very lonely. And and they just couldn't figure out why their life was such a train wreck. And it's just this missing circuit. You could say not, it's not literally a circuit in the brain, but um, if we're going to use the metaphor, you know, it's a circuit that involves how does this other person feel? And I hope I'm not, I hope I'm not negatively impacting that other person or it would it would give me pain to cause emotional pain in this other person. You know, for us non-psychopaths, we have that circuit when we cause other people pain or when we predict we're going to cause other people pain. It literally gives us physical pain. We that's what cringing is that when you're watching a TV show and your body is cringing, you're like caving in on yourself. It's because you're preparing, even though you know it's fictional, you know, you're watching like Curb Your Enthusiasm or something, even though you know it's fictional, we're so wired for noticing and avoiding the pain of others that when we see social pain happening, even in a fictional show, we cringe. Our body will go, oh, no, and because we're, we're feeling this pain. It's like, oh, this, you know, it was really, we're bracing for the impact of that negativity. And people with psychopathy, they don't have that. They don't care. Uh, you know, again, spectrum. Some people have some, but not a lot of that. And anyway, 
I could go on and on, but let's move on to another email. All right, this next email from an anonymous patron. She says, I was wondering how to get through to someone who suffers from a victim mentality. I know it often stems from trauma and is accompanied by depression and anxiety. For reference, my fiancé has been complaining about his job for years. Not enough pay, they don't treat him well, etc. Thing is, he goes in early without pay often, then comes home and complains to me about it. I want to help, but I almost feel like he doesn't deserve the pity he's pining for anymore. Part of that is due to me having been emotionally neglected and my own biases towards people who act helpless for attention. I know he truly feels helpless, and I want to help, but nothing seems to be working. What would you suggest if you had a client that had that did something similar? End of email. Well, anonymous patron, I would say that all my clients, including every human, does this. <laughs> Uh, when we suffer from repetitive things, they, te- they tend to repeat themselves. And, you know, th- th- the opposite of this would be like, well, when I experience something bad and I complain and then I fix it, uh, I can get to this optimal place where I literally never experience another annoying thing for the rest of my life. And that we all understand that's not true. I mean, for the rest of our life, we're probably going to be annoyed with the exact same thing. You know, any one of the things that I've learned about myself and possibly about human nature by keeping a journal since I was 13 years old is that my complaints never change. I mean, they kind of change, but the things that I c- concern myself with emotionally have essentially, you know, let's just say there, there are major themes that go back to when I was 13. <laughs> and... So even though I feel like I've, you know, accomplished things and fixed things in my life, I tend to create or attract or see things in a certain way that create the same complaints over and over again. They just look different. So um, this, so there's that. The other thing is, is that the whole phrase victim mentality, whenever I hear that, I always cringe because I don't know what anyone, when everyone's, oh my God, that person has such a victim mentality. I don't even know what that, what anyone is talking about. And I think what the accusation is, is that they invent things to complain about. But I don't know if people ever do that. I don't know if people are just like, you know, I wake up today, I'm just, I'm just going to like consciously complain about things that don't really need to be complained about. I, I mean, maybe someone like that exists, but I, I've never met someone like that. Now, can someone be, uh, stuck in a rut that they could easily change and they often complain about that? Sure. Can someone be subconsciously believing that they deserve to be mistreated at work and thus never assert themselves and, and are always trying to please their boss and never really... Yeah, I mean, we have all sorts of reasons for doing weird things. But the whole victim mentality accusation I find to be uh, dubious and... Um, discussed by people who have a, have an issue and and you you know admit to it you're like you were emotionally neglected as a child and you're biased against people who act helpless for attention so you i'm guessing were traumatized by parents or at least one parent who quote unquote acted helpless to get attention and and neglected you in the process so you have a bone to pick with people who complain. The thing I'll, I would say in honest patient, obviously go to couples therapy for this, but I suspect what would end up happening is 
You just have to learn how to deal with your own anxiety about other people having repetitive problems. You know, he comes home and he complains and he wants support. And it's not uncommon to uh, in the first phase of that to be like, well, why don't you quit or why don't you assert yourself or why do you keep bending over backwards? Why, why do you why don't you just stop doing it? Um, you know, it's fine to give that advice, but it, if it's obvious advice, it's not likely going to work, right? Because the, it, those things occurred to them already. So there, there's usually something else going on with that person, right? Maybe maybe you just only hear the bad parts of the job or I don't know. There's just various different reasons why someone would come home from work and complain and, and just never endeavor to change it. Um, but so the second phase of that is, oh, I've thrown out a lot of suggestions and they haven't really done any of those things. And I don't even think they really want to talk about fixes to this problem. So you enter into phase two and you just listen, you know, and, and you don't get wrapped up in it. You're just, you just, wow, that sounds really rough. Uh, you know, I'm really sorry that happened to you, but you don't get invested in a solution. You, you listen and you care and, you know, you just, and if they ask you for advice and you give it, but if they don't, then you don't give it and, and, and you don't feel compelled to do it because it, if you feel compelled to fix it and they don't follow your advice, then that's possibly when you get frustrated and insulted and angry and then you start to push them away, which isn't fair to them. They, they might not have ever asked you for advice. Now, I don't know because uh, the way you're describing it, it might actually be that way. He might actually be like coming home and because you say, you know, he's pining for attention or something. So I don't know if I heard more, maybe I'd be convinced of that. But people do that sometimes where they'll drum up essentially it's histrionic and they'll drum up false uh, reasons for complaining so that they can get attention from other people. They don't, again, do that consciously. It's a desperate need for attachment security that they learned from early in life. So uh, it's still not something, it's still not a quote unquote victim mentality. You know what I mean? But yeah. So I don't know. I, I, there's too many questions and I, I don't know if I helped at all there, but that's my best shot at answering that question. Right, this next email is from patron Laura. She says, what are some different methods of couple therapy? My therapist recently mentioned PACT or the psychobiological approach to couple therapy. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about the different options that are out there. End of email. Well, I don't have time to go into all the different, there's hundreds of different methods of couple therapy. Uh, some main ones are, you know, psychodynamic, attachment-based, EFT, Gottman, behavioral, cognitive, humanistic, solution-focused, narrative, what am I leaving out? Um, systemic, obviously. So, but there are hundreds of different approaches. Uh, the one you mentioned, the psychobiological approach to couple therapy, is essentially what I talk about. I, I don't know enough about it to know how, you know, PACT people, uh, I, don't, I don't know enough about their technique, but... The, th the way that they talk and the theories that they pull from are uh, similar to the way that I talk in terms of attachment and how we have we evolved a certain biological response to attachments, you know, how the way I talk. And so um, that's what I'll say about that. All right. This next email is from Anonymous Patron. They write, what is the responsibility of the betrayer when rebuilding the relationship? So there's a much longer email, but essentially what the anonymous patron is, I think, getting at is 
that they were cheated on, they were betrayed, and they're rebuilding the relationship after the betrayal, you know, infidelity or something. And the anonymous patron is the victim of the betrayal. And the person who did the betraying isn't doing enough to, you know, the, the, the anonymous patron is like, I want my partner to put more effort into rebuilding this relationship. And I feel like my partner isn't, isn't doing enough. You know, they're not, they're not putting in enough effort. And so the question is, you know, what is the responsibility of the betrayer to rebuild? You know, the question you ask here, what and how much has to be the responsibility of the partner who has betrayed? So a lot, you know, I, a lot of, if the betrayer, if the cheater wants to rebuild the relationship, that person has to do a lot of work to uh, rebuild the relationship. There's a lot of tasks that they have to do. There's a lot of things they have to do internally as well. And if you're struggling with that, an honest patron, you know, find a couple therapists because it's hard. I, I ha- whenever I work with infidelity or betrayal, recovery, I spend a lot of time educating the couple, particularly the betrayer. I spend a lot of time setting the groundwork for what they need to do and setting the expectations because there's so many things in our culture that say victim mentality, for example, where it's like, you know, I've already apologized to you and it's six months later. Why are you still complaining you're dwelling in the past you have victim mentality move on in life and we know that people who have been cheated on or betrayed that the pain can last years if not forever and so uh, but our culture doesn't teach us that and so um, you as the betrayed person could say look it's normal that I have ongoing pain and you have to do a lot to um, repair that it's one thing for you to say that. And it's another thing if I said that, right, if I tell the betrayer, I'm like, you know, they're right. You, if this is going to be a lifetime of pain, I know you didn't sign up for this when you betrayed them, but that's what is happening. You, you didn't know that was going to happen because society doesn't teach you that, but that's what's happening right now. And so if you really want to rebuild this relationship, you're going to have to do a lot to uh, rebuild, and you're going to have to listen to a lot of what happened. You're going to have to put a lot of proactive work into building trust, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I'm pretty pointed about it. Not every therapist is like me in this way, but I've found over time that the fastest way for me to be is I tell the betrayer the roadmap and I say, it's your choice. You either do this and things get better or you don't and things don't get better. So uh, I, I know the path and here's the path. And, and if you, if you take it, there's a chance things will work out. It's, it's not going to be without its bumps in the road, but this is the path. If you remain in your stubborn place of stop dwelling in the past and uh, I'm going to passively uh, approach the situation. If that's, if you continue to do that, then this is likely not going to work. Or if you stay together, there's going to be a ton of resentment and pain that will just persist for the rest of your relationship. It's your choice. And I'm pretty pointed about it. And I'm, and I, I don't beat around the bush with cheaters and with betrayers. I don't shy away from, I'm just like, you did something wrong. Cause it's morally wrong. <laughs> you know, 
And, and I feel like that needs to be established. And, and I feel like, and I've ranted about this before, and I'll, I won't do it for very long right now, but and, and even in my field, there's just this notion of like, especially when women cheat, honestly, that, well, she must have done it for a good reason. You know, it, in my field, when you hear about a woman cheating, it's just like, well, what did the man do? The man must have done something. It's like, well, maybe, but how about she just did something that was wrong? You know, people do wrong things sometimes. People hit people. You don't, when, when someone hits someone and punches a partner in the face, you don't go like, well, you know, what did they do to deserve it? You'd be like, no, you would never ask that question. That is completely asinine. So when someone cheats, you don't go, oh, what did the other person do to provoke the other person to cheat? No. Now, there are rare circumstances where you absolutely would excuse, so to speak, cheating. You know, if you're being abused, if you're systematically being abused and you cheat because you're just so desperate for someone to love you. Okay. It doesn't make it okay, but it certainly puts it in a broader understandable context. But abuse is wrong. Hitting someone is wrong. And cheating is wrong. It's, you know, when you have an exclusive agreement with someone, it's wrong. It's just flat out wrong. You you did a million little decisions that led to the betrayal of trust between you and your partner. And that is that. And that is end of sentence. Unless you have some compelling reason for the need for the cheating, that's just the end of it. And and the the cheater has to realize that. Now, the people that I work with, I don't have to be very strong with because typically if they're in couples therapy, they they know they did something wrong. So I don't have to usually beat people over the head with it. But mainly what I'm ranting about right now is me beating therapists over the head. I have to like beat <laughs> my trainees over the head with this notion of like, whatever sort of ideas you have about cheating and, you know, gender and stuff like you got to get rid of that shit fast because it's a total double standard in our, in our culture, in our field. And you need to understand, you know, there's a moral right and there's a moral wrong. It's immoral to lie to someone. It's immoral to deceive someone. It's immoral to tell someone I'm not going to have sex with someone else and then have sex with someone else. That's immoral. It's immoral for me to walk into Safeway or, you know, to a grocery store and push someone down or to steal money from the till. It's immoral for me to walk into your house and steal your dog. It's immoral for me to tell you that I'm going to pick you up and take you to the airport when I don't intend to do that. And then I just completely flake and I did it on purpose. That's immoral. It's wrong. It is knowingly harming another person and it's not okay. And it causes problems, obviously. And that needs to be the foundation of any discussion of infidelity or betrayal. All right. Next email and honest patron says, what are butterflies in the stomach? I was recently talking to my therapist about a new potential crush she told me that some psychologists think that the sensation of butterflies might actually be your subconscious picking up on red flags and that it's really a sign of anxiety rather than security. Is there any truth to this? If so, can you elaborate? End of email. Well, we don't really know. It's hard to measure and zero in on, you know, why do we have butterflies? But there's a lot of ways to look at it. The way that I look at it is that we have needs um, for Rome, you know, how do I put it? So when we really want something like romance, we really want romance, we really want companionship, we really want someone to love us, and we want mutual love. 
Most of us want that. And we're pretty desperate for it. And when we're at the precipice of achieving it, you know, we have a crush on someone or we're on a first date and we're like, am I going to have mutual love? Is this person going to love me? Am I going to love them? I feel like I really love them. Do they love me? Do they even like me? What's happening right now? That That's anxiety. That's fear of what if this doesn't work out? I really want it to work. You know, it's also, you know, butterflies you could also interpret as anticipation, right? Like you're about to bungee jump and you always wanted to bungee jump and you're a little afraid, but you, but you also know it's going to be really fun. Or you're on a roller coaster and you're going up the, you know, the incline and you're about to go down and it's exciting and you voluntarily decided to do this. And, you know, there's a sense of butterflies in your stomach of like, here it comes, here it comes. Or it's Christmas morning and you're about to get a bunch of, you know, presents and you're eight years old and you're like, I wonder if I'm going to get my, the Nintendo or whatever it is. You know, there's a, a feeling of anticipation and there's a, there's a little bit of fear in there. It's like, well, what if I don't get it? You know, what if it doesn't happen? That's the way I would put it. Um, but in terms of, uh, what your therapist says that butterflies might actually be your subconsciously picking up on red flags. Yeah. I mean, maybe I've never seen that before and that wouldn't be my first assumption. Uh, are there red flags and might your gut tell you? Th- I, I would think that there's a difference between butterflies and a gut feeling. Now, what I'll also say is that, and I've talked about this before, particularly with my students. I don't know if I've talked about the podcast before, but the feeling of being in love is sometimes a manifestation of one's need to recreate a past relationship. So for example, let's say you have an abusive father and you meet someone who doesn't seem abusive, but has little indications of dominance and and control and self-assuredness. And you you know, have butterflies and you fall deeply in love with this person. You're just like, yes. Oh my God. I'm so attracted. I want to rip his clothes off. It's possible that a portion, if not a majority of your attraction, lust and your crush on him is because your subconscious knows that you can recreate the relationship you had with your dad, with him, because your subconscious knows this, this guy's abusive. And, uh, so, you know, I talk about that sometimes and, and might butterflies, be a manifestation of that? Yeah, absolutely. But if someone told me that they had a crush on someone and whenever they saw them, they had butterflies, my first assumption would not be that they're picking up on red flags. This next email is from anonymous annual patron. They say, how can I cultivate friendships? Um, I won't read the rest of the email, but essentially they are 24 years old. They used to make friends easily in the past, but it's hard now. They're getting their PhD in clinical psych and they're in therapy and there doesn't to work on how to make friends and they're not seeing any progress. Well, I don't know, anonymous annual patron. It's hard, you know, making friends and keeping friends and having good friends. It's, it's like trying to tell, how do you find a companion? How do you find a spouse that you'll be in love with the rest of your life? You know, it's, it's, it's in a very similar difficulty range and, and complexity range. But what I'll, I'll just rattle off some tips that, that I do, which is always invite, always be the one to initiate and give up on, well, they never initiate because if you sit at home and wait to, for other people to initiate, or even for other people to reciprocate initiations, 
you'll be lonely. So like for me, I just initiate. And I, a long time ago, I just said, life is short. I'm not going to play a game with people. If I want them to be my friend, I'm just going to, I'm just going to make shit happen. And what I found was that most people are just sitting at home waiting for me to call them. <laughs> and they're terrified of initiating things. And I'm just like, okay, well, I'll just, I guess I'll do the initiation. Um, the other thing is that when people turn you down, don't take it personally and just keep at it. You know, don't stalk someone. But if you invite someone to something and they're like, oh, I'm busy, you don't go like, well, I guess they're not my friend. Um, most people are lonely. I, one of the best things you can do to cultivate friendships is assume that everyone you know has no friends because it's probably true. I mean, there are people in my life that I'm friends with that before I, and, and I remember, you know, there's this one guy that I'm friends with now, pretty good friends with. And I wanted, I've wanted to be friends with him for a long time. And, and we've been friends, but not like super close. And I just always assumed that he had like hundreds of friends. He's a very popular, like uh, dynamic human who has a you know very dynamic life and and, and is traveling all the time. Da da da. And I, I just thought there's you know there's no way that he would prioritize me because he's got you know he's look at all the things he's doing, all the people that he's involved with, all the exciting things he's doing. Well. At one point, he basically told me kind of recently that I was his best friend <laughs> or and to some extent, his only friend. And I was like, huh? And it was just another example of just assume that everyone is lonely and has no friends because it's probably true. And if you assume that you'll just you just keep at it and you just never, you know, like if someone turns you down, it's usually not because they have better friends. It's because they're. They, they don't have time for friends or they're depressed or, you know, there's, there's some other reason. And so uh, that might be the best thing I can say to you, but there's obviously other things that you could do. All right. Next email, anonymous patron. She says, I'm seeing someone new right now, and I'm starting to feel compelled to share with him that I was raped three years ago as the event was a turning point for me and continues to be distressing at times in nightmares and during physical intimacy with other people. As I contemplate telling my partner, what are some possible reactions I may come to expect? And is there a way to phrase it that might not feel too jarring or uncomfortable for him? End of email. Well, I don't know if it's just anecdotal or the people in my circle, but I find that most people, if not everyone I know, but anyway, most people and, and men included, that if you could say it however you want to say it, and it would probably re be received in a way that you would like in that they would have compassion, they would care and they would say, Oh, you know, is there anything I can do? And, Oh, you know, uh, is there ways that we could maybe uh, roll around in bed together sexually that would not trigger you? You know, I feel like the awareness quotient today is much higher than it was in the past. And the understanding of the reality of it is, is, is much higher than before. But can you uh, count on that? No. You know, obviously some people could consider it. I don't know. There's all sorts of stupid notions out there like you're unclean because you were raped and all that kind of stuff. It's like, come on. But um, but you're asking, like, well, what do I say? You know, just say it. Say it however you want to say it. You know, if you want to say it, um, just say, hey, you know, I have something to tell you. 
um, you know, I, I don't want to bother you with this or I don't want to shock you with this, but it's a pretty big part of my life and it, it kind of affects you and me in some ways in that I was raped um, long ago and it affects me in the following ways. You know, just to say, there's also a good possibility he's been sexually assaulted too. Don't assume that your partners have not been sexually assaulted. A lot of people, including men, have been sexually assaulted. So uh, don't feel like you're talking to a, someone who doesn't understand what that's like. The other thing is that your partner might have been with other people who have been sexually assaulted as well. So, um, But the thing is, is you deserve to speak it. You deserve to voice it. You deserve to be understood. You deserve someone to uh, accommodate you in these ways. And so speak up because you deserve to be heard. This next email is from someone who refers to themselves as a patron of color. They write, Hi, Kirk. Love your podcast. I've been reading The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Are you familiar with the book? Do you like the book? End of email. Yeah, I get this question a lot. Yeah, I have the book. I'm familiar with the book. I've always, I've been, you know, it's a pretty famous book in my field. Uh, I like the book. It's a great book. It resonates with a lot of people. Um, for me personally, by the time I came across it, either all of its ideas had been incorporated into the culture such that they weren't new to me, or Bessel van der Kolk is generating their ideas from the same place that I'm generating my theory of how humans work. So it's a powerful book. Many people, you know, if if you have trauma in your life, or, even, or really anything, I mean, it's not just for people. Tra- well, all of us have been traumatized. <laughs> so uh, if you're interested in a book to learn about the self and to have a metaphor or a way of seeing things and you want to learn about some research and stuff, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk is you know, definitely worth a, worth a try. And, you know, you can buy them used on Amazon maybe for like four bucks or something. All right, next email, anonymous patron wrote in, could you talk about children as caregivers to a mentally ill parent with bipolar and the rest of the family and the impacts it has on a child? Also, how the impact translates into adult life, end of email. Well, you know, I've talked about parentification before, growing up too fast before, uh, neglect before. So all those previous conversations apply potentially to this. Um, you know, I, I don't know. There's a lot of different experiences, but generally speaking, if you had a mentally ill parent with significant bipolar, meaning that they potentially had delusions or, you know, severe depression, severe mania, hospitalization, that kind of thing. And as a child, you're the caregiver of that parent. Then there's a lot of different common things that will happen. One is that you have to grow up way too fast. You become responsible way too fast. You're denied a childhood. You're denied yourself. You're not connected with your needs. You're not connected with yourself. You're not connected with your emotions. You feel like your only um, usefulness in life is to save other people from their problems. You might be attracted to people who kind of are a train wreck. You might have a lot of anger and resentment about being forced to give up your childhood. If you have your own children, you might subconsciously deny them their childhood. I've seen that before where I would be working with a parent and they would just be hell bent on making their 13 year old like a responsible adult. They'd be just like, it's unacceptable that a 13 year old is doing X, Y, and Z. And I'd be like, well, you know, it's kind of normal for a 13 year old to do so. I'm not saying that you should accept it for a 13 year old to 
talk back, for example, you, you know, you want to do the, but the, the reaction from the parent would just be like 50 times bigger than it needed to be. And some of the time, what I would discover is that they, uh, this person, when the parent, when they were young, were completely denied their childhood. And sometimes I would find that when, uh, for example, I would have a parent who was parented uh, fairly well until the age of 12, and then their parents died or something. And then they were denied their childhood from 12 on with their own kids. They were fine until their children became 12. And then they, then they just completely turned on their kids and because that's when their life took a turn. So, you know, there's a lot of things I could say, but that's what I'll say to that. And that's what I'll do for this episode. Tune in next time. So I'm, I'm trying to get through every single um, email and um, I am. These are like regular patron emails, not upper tier patrons. I have 33 pages of emails and I just got through seven so I'm guessing this is going to be a lot of episodes of me, but but I feel like it. And then this doesn't even get to the non-patron emails. I mean, I mean, like on this document, how many pages? How many pages of emails do I have from non? Oh, it's only 23 pages. So maybe I could get to that too. So tune in next time when I try and fail to completely answer every single email. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself. And don't beat yourself up if you don't meet all your daily goals because you deserve it. You really, really do.